Hello, and welcome to the Zircona Growth Insights Podcast, bringing clarity to the complexities of consumer behavior. Episodes feature industry experts, partners, and guests across the 26 industries we track, representing nearly $4 trillion in global consumer spending. Our goal is to give you transformative insights and the most complete view of consumer and market opportunities. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Circana Growth Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Joan Driggs, coming to you from Circana's headquarters in Chicago. Um, today, I'm joined by David Portalatin, Circana's Senior Vice President and Industry Advisor, Food and Food Service. David is the author of our annual Eating Patterns in America report, which provides deep market research and consumer insights into the food and food service landscapes. Um, David consults with food manufacturers and retailers, food service distributors, manufacturers and operators on the state of the food and food service industries and provides insights into where these markets are headed. So today is the first of what I hope is going to be many conversations around our ability to view the complete food and beverage landscape, including retail, food service, and non-commercial, and how people are making their food choices, where they obtain their food, um, food preparation, and especially consumption. So welcome, David. Hey, thanks, Joan. Um, Thanks for the kind introduction. It's an honor to be here. David, first of all, this whole notion of complete food and beverage is new. So I'd like to understand from you what is what is new about it? What does it solve for? Well, th- this is huge, and uh, we're really excited because, uh, number one, uh, not only is the combined company measuring $2.9 trillion in consumer spend uh, in the U.S., but we now know that at least $1.5 trillion of that is foods and beverages uh, across the entire spectrum, from retail uh, to food service, uh, where retail is doing prepared foods. So everywhere in between, all those blurry areas where sometimes information used to go off to hide, um, we've got it all covered. Uh, And it's really exciting to be able to give uh, marketers in the food and beverage uh, world uh, the, the complete understanding of the flow of their products. Um, from retail to food service and ultimately to the consumer. Uh, So we've known for a long time, you know, what's sold at retail, for example, but now to be able to connect the dots to that in a very tangible way to the actual consumption occasions, whether that was at breakfast, uh, whether it was used as an ingredient uh, to a dish, or whether it was just uh, eaten as a base food, consumed as a beverage, a standalone. Who else was present? What were the motivations underlying the occasion? You know, all of that breadth of information coming together in one place, uh, and that's really does paint a complete picture. That's why we're calling it complete food uh, of what's going on. It's uh, it's really exciting to be a part of. That is exciting, and to me, it it seems like a great opportunity to really get a view of your whole competitive landscape. You know, for example, you mentioned breakfast, and it might be that you might be in the breakfast cereal industry or you might be in the dairy case. But now you know what people are consuming either in food service or in on the go at school. So, you know, like what the competition is and maybe where some of those gaps or opportunities are. Well, I'm I'm glad you mentioned breakfast because that's actually where we see uh, some of the biggest movement right now. Breakfast, and and look, if we didn't have this complete view, um, people would have a harder time piecing this together. 
But now breakfast is the only day part uh, that is fully reverted back to its pre state. And what I mean by that is um, meals sourced at a restaurant at breakfast are fully back to their pre-pandemic volume now. And so uh, if you didn't have that piece of it, you might have a hard time understanding what's going on uh, on the cereal aisle or uh, uh, in the refrigerated case with my uh, yogurt or uh, with, uh, you know, bars and things of that nature. Uh, or in the coffee space, for example, because coffee is such a big deal at breakfast. But you know, now we're able to put all of this together. You know, the information has been out there, but now it resides in one place uh, where you can really view what's going on across that breakfast landscape and understand, oh, uh, mobility is back. The consumer is on the go a little bit more. Uh, the morning day part, it, it, at no other time during the day is convenience more important to the consumer than in the morning. Now, convenience is always important all the time, right? Because we're always busy. But morning is when it's uh, ratcheted up the most intense. Somebody told me a number. I have no idea if this is true. 7.32 in the morning is the most intense minute of the 24-hour spectrum. Now, that could be totally made up, but I believe it because our mornings are intense. And so, uh, the value of that convenience in the morning is driving a lot of people to the drive through window for their breakfast or the convenience store for their morning cup of coffee, whereas for the last couple of years, we've been more likely to make all of those things at home. So uh, that's just one example of how Complete Food is helping people stitch things together and understand what's really happening in the marketplace. I love what you just said about coffee, too, because to me, coffee was one of those products that took a dramatic change during the pandemic, you know, think think about it. When the pandemic first hit, a lot of coffee shops were shut down. So people started bringing that coffee experience into the home. They invested in all sorts of fancy coffee machines and frothers and different products. They were maybe making more premium products at home. And are you seeing that that's something that's stuck or is that something that's reverting back the way breakfast did? You know, what you just described at coffee is really part of a, a broader phenomenon. I, I sort of just refer to it as home centricity, meaning that all of our life today is a little more ordered around the home and what happens inside the home uh, than it was before. And yes, all of those things are sticky. And by the way, um, that this move towards home centricity was happening before the pandemic ever came along. It was happening at a, a much slower incremental pace, and the pandemic accelerated uh, the development of that. I always like to say, in, in many cases, the pandemic took a lot of existing trend and just fast forwarded about five years. And this home centricity was one of those. So, um, you know, look, the American consumer spent hundreds of millions of dollars on ways to increase our capacity to do life at home. The coffee makers, the frothers, uh, the the cappuccino espresso machines, all of those things were part of that. Uh, it went beyond that into air fryers and all the other appliances. It went beyond food into uh, home gym equipment, into technology to do school and work and those things from home, into entertainment uh, at home. So the home centricity move is a is a big deal. It has been sticky. And then to bring this back to coffee. Uh, just so you know, I didn't get lost. Uh, <laughs> um, it, you know, it's not an either or for the consumer these days. It's both. In that morning day part, the, the reality is a lot of things are happening in the morning. 
I might still brew a cup of coffee at home and then I might hit the road and grab another one at a convenience store or at a coffee shop uh, or um, at my place of work. Uh, and so there's a lot of different occasions that are happening um, throughout that time. And, and home centricity is still claiming a bigger stake of what's happening uh, than it was before. Uh, and it's it's always going to be that way uh, going forward. You know, so one of the things, and, and I do want to bring it back to the complete food, because food, we're in this period right now of very high inflation. And food, because it's essential, has really weathered it rather well. Um, but it hasn't been even across the board. And some of the things that I'm hearing from you, like with that either or, the convenience and the and making sure we have the best experience, that home centricity, um, that all feeds into that. But can you tell us a little bit about um, what what it's going to look like moving forward? And are we going to find more innovation in convenience and experience at home? Like, what does it look like? Yeah, there's there's no doubt that consumers have made all kinds of behavioral change in response to inflation, as you noted. Most of our cutbacks are on all the discretionary kinds of things, uh, which enables us to provide for our needs, and certainly foods and beverages are one of those. But that doesn't mean we haven't changed uh, the how, the where, the what of how we uh, shop for foods and beverages. And so we've seen a lot of these trading down behaviors, whether it's uh, looking for a less expensive item or a less expensive brand, or maybe in a good, better, best scenario, uh, we trade down from the premium offering to the, you know, the the opposite end of that spectrum would be a private label type offering. On the restaurant side, it may mean uh, what used to be a uh, full service restaurant dining occasion now may be a quick service uh, restaurant occasion uh, or a fast casual restaurant. And so we, we've seen a lot of those shifts happen. Where I think we are now is that uh, we're starting to see what economists would call disinflation. That doesn't mean deflation, but what it means is the rate of price increase is starting to moderate a little bit. And I suspect that by the time you get midway through this year, uh, consumers are going to look around and they're going to say, you know what, prices, things are still more expensive than they were a couple of years ago, but I don't feel prices going up so fast anymore. And this, there's this idea, this concept, I, I didn't come up with this, somebody else did, but this idea of frugal fatigue, where we've been cutting back, we've been watching our budget, we've been sacrificing, we've been doing this for so long that we find ways to say, you know what, darn it, I deserve a little treat. I deserve a little reward. Uh, and that's where I think uh, is, is one of the reasons why you see momentum in the specialty coffee category at, at food service right now. Uh, you would think in a high inflation environment, maybe paying eight bucks for a, a, a specialty coffee is not in my best interest. But this is one of those examples, I believe, where consumers say, you know what, I'm doing all the right things. I'm meeting my budget. And you know what? This just gives me that sense of normalcy. This makes me feel like all is well with the world. It's a little bit of self-care. And one of the things consumers learned through that pandemic is that the role foods and beverages play in our mental and emotional well-being is important and not to be ignored. So we used to talk about health and wellness all the time, you know, pretty much in the, under the parameters of diet, exercise, nutrition, calories, all of those kinds of things. Consumers today are much more into thinking about health and wellness as including our mental and emotional well-being. And so that feeds in 
uh, to what I'm talking about as well. We see it not just in the coffee piece, but we see it in things like, um, you know, the candy aisle, uh, for example. There's some categories there that are that are doing really well. So uh, we see it outside of the food and beverage space in the prestige beauty world, where maybe it's a, a skincare product or a fragrance or something. Uh, but these these things that are really relatively affordable uh, as an individual purchase. Uh, but they may not have really been necessary, uh, but they fit in our budget. They make us feel better. Uh, and, and so I think for the rest of this year, marketers need to be open to these opportunities to you know, help the consumer feel valued, help them have a treat or a reward. And it doesn't necessarily have to be at the absolute lowest price point. You know, it's interesting because I completely agree with you. Some of these small indulgences are so much more affordable than really investing in something, you know, more discretionary like new clothing or um, new technology. So absolutely spot on. But I do think that retailers and manufacturers can do a little bit more to help. And I'll use I'll use promotions as a perfect example. Um, you know, before the pandemic, we really, as shoppers, we really relied on some of those promotions and they went away during the pandemic because there was no need for them. We were just buying anything. We were clearing the shelves. But now, especially with inflation, and as you said, that softening of prices or price increases, I would think that promotions would be the way to kind of buffer or, or offer lower prices, but not necessarily commit to them. So what are you seeing in terms of promotions and and are they going to finally make a comeback to a, a better depth than we? Yeah, seen? you're right, Joan. And and also don't underestimate the, the fact that all the supply chain disruption made it really not feasible to promote at times in certain categories as well. If you can't get the product on the shelf, why would you discount it? But as supply chains recover and get healthier and inventory levels come up, re retailers will do what retailers do and they will move that inventory. And that means promotions. Uh, and so, yeah, we're starting to see promotions come back. I, I don't think uh, that promotions generally create the kind of incremental lift that they perhaps used to. Uh, but, you know, price is always important. Uh, it's always the biggest lever you can pull to to move consumer behavior. And so even though we might be interested in that more premium priced offering, uh, if we can get a deal on it, uh, then that's the ultimate win for the consumer. And so you are starting to see uh, promotion come back a little bit. Uh, we're starting to see that on the restaurant side of the equation, too. Uh, one of the questions I get most often uh, from the food service world is that with all of the inflation going on, is this going to usher in a return to value wars? And you remember a decade mm -hmm. or so ago and everybody had a dollar menu and everything was, you know, bundled and comboed and deeply discounted. And um, the answer is sort of uh, we're not coming back to value wars in restaurants the way that it was done before. In fact, over the last year, you know, customer traffic uh, that included items purchased off a value menu is actually down double digits. Meanwhile, uh, restaurant meals purchased where the consumer say says that they used a digital discount or a digital coupon is up double digits. And so mm -hmm. the way that we promote in the restaurant world is changing and increasingly it's through the smartphone. So that digital ordering, uh, which is still growing, 
but it's moving beyond just the transactional into a broader engagement with the consumer as a means to drive loyalty and frequency and deliver value in the form of deals or discounts or whether it's reward points or actual uh, you know, coupons. Um, we're seeing digital be the path to that, imp- that promotional environment on the food service side of the landscape. I love that. And that is like the best segue to another topic as part of this complete food and beverage conversation around e-commerce. You know, it's almost like a a different channel entirely. Um, So, you know, e-commerce really rose um, to the occasion during the pandemic. Um, As you mentioned, restaurants really pivoted to digital or online ordering um, and similar with grocery. But now we're seeing more of a more of a return to in-store and you mentioned how restaurants are kind of keeping shoppers or keeping visitors engaged what do you see ahead for um, e-commerce in terms of total or complete food and beverage john this is a really cool example of how circana is going to be able to do things uh, and bring insights that that nobody else can and here's here's what i mean by that um outside of the food and beverage space e-commerce is much uh, better developed. Uh, For example, uh, in consumer technology, think about, you know, PCs, smartphones, you know, TVs, anything electronic. Um, Online represents almost 60% of total sales. Now, compare that to, you know, the restaurant world where digital orders are somewhere around 14, 15%, depending on what time frame you look at. And, and then in grocery, it's, it's probably a smaller percentage than that. You know, we're really in the early innings of this e-commerce game compared to other consumer categories. And so we can take a look uh, to understand what's ahead by looking at these other industries. And increasingly, that answer is omni-channel. So it's not one versus the other. It's not e-commerce versus in-store. It's the same consumer who we're engaging through both. And so uh, it's really uh, imperative to understand uh, the consumer needs, the consumer occasions, uh, the various categories, um, and and understand when the consumer needs that in-store or on-premises experience and when they need uh, the digital uh, convenience. And um, I think you're going to find both retailers and restaurant operators who understand how to engage that in a complete way across in-store and digital. And that's likely to differentiate who some of the winners and losers are uh, in the marketplace. But digital is here to stay. It's going to continue to grow. Look, we during the pandemic, we taught a whole generation of people how to buy online that otherwise would have probably not really gone down that path. And the American consumer is a, is a unique creature. When we stretch, when we grow our muscles, when we learn new things, we typically don't abandon those things. And so uh, consumers that learned how to buy online will continue to buy online, maybe not at the same rate they did during the pandemic, but it's going to be a new tool in their toolkit uh, for how to make things convenient uh, for them. And so um yeah, you know, it's not it's not going away. On, on the grocery world, you know, we see that about 40% of consumers over the last 30 days uh, have purchased grocery online. Uh, that doesn't mean they bought all of their groceries online. It means it's part of that total engagement. And then, as I said before, about 14 to 15% of, of restaurant orders uh, are now digital. 
the one thing that I think is the big lookout going forward and where both grocery and restaurants are different than every other area of merchandise that we're covering is that uh, last mile of delivery. And in the e-commerce world, you know, that last mile is where all the focus is right now. And you look at what people like uh, Amazon have done, where sometimes, you know, you order something and it shows up the same day. They've really honed in on that last mile of delivery. But that last mile is very expensive. And uh, if I'm ordering a pair of sneakers, uh, that last mile is is a lot easier. I, I could do five-day shipping and get free shipping. Uh, I live in Houston, Texas, where you know already in mid-April, it's going to be 90 degrees. Uh, those sneakers can sit on my front porch in 90-degree weather. I don't worry about the quality uh, degrading. We can't do that with our groceries or our restaurant meals. And so uh, it's incredibly expensive. The timeliness is so important. And that's why I believe, and I think the data is already showing the momentum here, that order online, pick up in store or at the restaurant is going to be where a lot of the momentum is. The consumer is increasingly waking up and saying, you know what, Uh, it's more affordable if I just go pick it up. I can control the temperature. I can control the quality. I don't worry if the DoorDash driver is sampling my French fries. Uh, <laughs> I can control what happens here, uh, and, and I can do it in a more budget-friendly way. And so I think that's why you're going to see a lot more momentum on buy online, pick up in store, or conversely, order on the smartphone, pick it up at the restaurant. You know, this has been such a dynamic, and I know the first of many conversations that we're going to have. But one of the biggest takeaways, um, and I want to recap a couple of things, but one of the biggest takeaways I've heard from you, even if you didn't say it this way, is that throughout the pandemic, we had this whole new generation of cooks. You know, we've got younger people who really learned how to flex their, their kitchen muscles, and they're going to stick with it. On the other end, we've got a lot of older consumers who really learned how to buy online. And even again, to your point, it might not be you know, to the same degree that they were doing it a year ago, it's a fixed behavior. So to me, these are two very dynamic things that just both illustrate what our capabilities are with complete food and beverage, but also where a lot of the opportunities are. So I also want to just recap a couple of the things that you mentioned, and that was that complete food and beverage is probably the much larger portion of that 2.9 trillion dollars spend that we're tracking across industries like beauty and auto and tech and um, games. I mean, we've got so many of them, Um, but it's the most unique look at what people are buying, where they're buying, how they're consuming it, um, all the different behavior switches that are taking place and the impact on all these categories and how it's going to benefit retailers and manufacturers. Um, That inflation has been definitely an issue, but that we have, we're we're tired of it. Um, And I think that you use the term um, frugal fatigue. I love that. I think we're gonna have to trademark that or something. Um, But that our industry is so much better suited to rewarding people and helping them through this inflationary period. Because as you said, It's more affordable, um, but it's still almost a for our personal health and wellness. We can we can indulge a little bit. 
With that, David, I want to thank you for your time, and I look forward to our next conversation. Joan, this was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it, and let's talk again soon. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Sarconic Growth Insights podcast so you don't miss an episode. And let us know what you'd like us to cover. We'll serve it up in a future episode. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to review Sarconic Growth Insights. Want to learn more? Visit us at Zircona.com and connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.